Hello and welcome to Filibustering Museology, a podcast series where we discuss what museum specialists do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. It is springtime. Graduation is in the air. Academic years are coming to a close around the country. Teachers and students are dreaming about free time and summer vacations. But not us. Here in SNHU's underground lair in an abandoned missile silo on the dark side of the moon next to the Applebee's, we are taking this podcast series in a new direction, for the summer at least. Now today is May 18th, International Museum Day, and in that spirit we're going to start posting new podcast episodes where we interview museum specialists from around the world, including some of the big names in museology from Argentina, France, Brazil, Russia, Canada, and the United States. This is all in anticipation for the symposium that SNHU is hosting in September in conjunction with the International Committee for Museology, or ICOFOM. Now, you've heard me talk about this symposium before. Those of you who are using your special filibustering history fan club branded notebook and pen set should consult your notes or simply go back to listen to episode number 24. Anyway, we're going to post interviews with many of the keynote speakers and panelists who are scheduled to participate in that symposium in September. We're also expanding the number of co-hosts for this project. James Fennessy, the Associate Dean of Faculty for History at SNHU, will be here for most of these interviews. And joining us will be Dr. Yunshun Suzy Chung, an instructor at SNHU and a longtime member of the International Council of Museums, or ICOM, and the International Committee for Museology, the aforementioned ICOFOM. She was instrumental in proposing and organizing this symposium in the first place, and is an all-around certified super-museologist. Super fans of this podcast will fondly remember episode 18, where James and I talked to Susie about her jet-setting career. Today, James, Susie, and I are talking to Dr. Francois Marez, a professor at the Université Sorbonne Nouvelle in Paris, and the president of the International Committee for Museology. Don't worry, that's going to be my last attempt to speak any French. Today we're going to talk about Francois's career, the changing infrastructure goals and intentions of museums in Europe, and the series of symposia around the world that is charged with redefining the museum for the 21st century. What is your name and what do you do? I'm Francois Mérès and I'm professor at the Sorbonne Nouvelle and I'm ICOFOM president. Francois, could you share a little bit about your academic background and how you came to um, be in the role that you're in today? Yeah, I used to study in a business school for for five years, and then I realized that it was, I was very much interested in the museum sector, and I realized that it was not enough for for me. Uh, If I wanted to enter that museum field, uh, I needed some um, art history courses, so I decided to study art history. Then I continued by a PhD dissertation on philosophy and letters at the University of Brussels. All of these backgrounds are from the University of Brussels. And then I started to to be a researcher for a couple of months, but actually I was called by a minister to work with him um, in the cultural field in order to, not specifically about uh, to work on museums, but among them, And then I was hired to be a museum director uh, of a national museum in Belgium, which is the Musée Royal de Marimont, which was a very beautiful museum. During eight years, I became museum director, and I had to organize, of course, uh, different exhibitions and to uh, try to to run all of the different aspects of the the museum uh, field at that moment. 
I was always interested in museum theory and I started also to teach museum studies, museology. It's called museology in, in, in French-speaking countries at Lyon in France. And I was very much interested in teaching and in research and I thought that it could be very interesting also for me to, to leave the museum management sector in order to, to teach. And then I was hired at, at La Sorbonne Nouvelle, which was, which is one of the, the universities in Paris in order to teach actually not only museum studies, but mostly cultural economics because of my previous background. But of course, as I was very much interested in museum studies fields, uh, I tried to develop and to create, of course, uh, a master degree in, in museum studies at, uh, at the Sorbonne Nouvelle. And, of course, I invested very much in teaching, but also in museum administration as becoming uh, first a dean of my department and then vice president of the university and then continuing re research. And, uh, well, here is it. I'm, I'm very interested in the part of your life where you completed some museology training at the Bruno International Summer School mm. in the Czech Republic. So how, yeah. how did you get there? Well, actually, it was, it's, a, it's a very interesting because in Belgium, actually, there was no, at that moment, there were no museum studies courses. One, just one course, I mean, but not a real master. Uh, so I decided to study museum studies in the Netherlands during one year, just before my PhD dissertation. And I was very enthusiastic about the idea of museum studies, the theory behind museum studies. Uh, and I learned that in Brno, uh, there was a specific school of thought that were belonging to the eastern, I would say, eastern community. Brno was the second city of Czechoslovakia uh, during the eastern period, the Soviet period. And uh, at that moment, it was also, I would say, the head of theoretical thinking about museology. And museology at that moment uh, in Brno was thought that it could be a real science, a developing science, I would say. And the professor that was in charge of this uh, movement was Zbigniew Stransky, who was a very famous museologist at that moment. And I realized it was still possible to, to follow some of his courses because there was a summer course in, organized by UNESCO in Brno with uh, Stransky. So that's the reason why I decided in, I think in 1995 or something like that, uh, to follow his courses. And these courses ended uh, just a couple of years after, because of the, the end of the uh, Berlin Wall, etc., etc. I see. And so some of those courses that you've taken from the Netherlands at Rheinwart, right, mm -hmm. and from the Bruno International Summer School, were they a part of your research as a part of the doctoral program? No. Actually, at that moment, there were no, uh, in, in Europe, there were mostly no doctoral program. So you could feel completely free to organize your, your I would say, your courses and your research in order to, to, to write your PhD dissertation. And But I was so much interested in that I decided to follow these because it was not possible to get this information without having contacts with these persons. And it's in contact with people such as Peter van Mensch at the Reinhardt Academy in, in the Netherlands and Zbigniew Stransky that I, I discovered that it was um, a specific international committee within ICOM, the International Council of Museums, uh, the World Organization of Museums, that was specialized in museum studies or, I would say, uh, of course, museology. So that's how I met ICOFOM, which was the, that committee. 
That's very interesting. What do you see as the future directions in museology? Oh, that's a very difficult question, Samaha. Well, <laughs> first, in order to, to answer that question, you should also try to explain a bit what is museology, because actually, for um, a lot of people, museology still remains a, a strange word. Mostly, people think about museum studies and practical thinking, uh, practical teaching on museum stuff, I would say, how to manage a museum, how to organize an exhibition, how to uh, try to fund some, raise some funds in order to, to manage a museum, etc., etc. Behind all of this practical world, there is a kind of way of thinking about what is a museum, why are museums made, what was the, the story behind museums, I would say? Why are people creating some museums? And of course, there is kind of historical perspective, but is a kind of, uh, I would say, a philosophical question behind this. Why are we, as a civilization, organizing these type of specific organizations? And um, actually, these were definitely the type of questions I, I was fascinated by because I realized that museums were so important for our Western world in Europe, in the United States, of course, and uh, actually that it, it started to be more and more important also in Asia and different other parts of the, of the world. So I think these types of questions are of course, not definitely uh, very practical, that they are somehow uh, uh, theoretical, but they are really linked with the sense of our work within the museum field and actually the activities, the, the spiritual activities that we are following at the university. If we just have to, to think about that, of course, museology is, I would say, the field where all of these questions could be raised and, and try to be answered. And Peter van Mensch tried to define a theory concerning that very specific relation between man and reality that provoke the organization of specific institutions such as museums, but before of that, cabinet of curiosities, or even in the antiquity, there were some specific sites where people were thinking about their relation with the universe, of course, linked with the Greek antiquity, etc. All of these ways of thinking are depending on, on museology, I would say. And in order to conceive the future of museums, you have to think about all of these things behind museums. That's, I would say, the most important challenge for museology is to think about, I would say, the, the trends that will develop the museum fields within the next years or decades. So you raised a very good point about the connection between people and history and museums, because for many people, that understanding of the past and, and being able to take that past and work it into their own narrative of how they came to be and who they are is so important to them. You know, we see it in historical recreations. We see it in the number of people that visit national monuments and museums every year. So I was wondering if you could just expand a little bit more on that, about that connection between history and museums, because you bring up a very great point. Well, actually, when you think about the development of science in, in the 16th century, I would say, I mean modern science with Francis Bacon, etc., you realize how much, I would say, museums are so connected with all of the different science. Of course, 
I would say the development of natural science is closely connected with the development of museums and, and, and museum collections in Oxford, in London, in Paris, uh, in different countries and cities in, in Europe at the beginning, but also the development of history is closely connected with the making of collections that were gathered in the very first cabinet of, of curiosities or museums. I mean, one of the people who is supposed to be one of the fathers of, of, of history is... Um, is Giovio, Paolo Giovio, uh, who was this Italian very first historian in, in, in the Renaissance. And his name is also closely connected with the museum as an academy and partly as a, as a collection. Because the collection was actually the way he could investigate history by gathering a lot of different elements trying to, to class them, to make a kind of systematic analyze, and then to propose some uh, new versions of uh, different things. And actually, all of what our way of investigating history, but also uh, investigating in, in science more generally, is closely connected to, with this specific fact of accumulating facts, accumulating databases. But what is a museum if it's not a database? Actually, it's a database of first of object, but also of substitutes of objects, of, the, of, of course now uh, of, of digital facts, etc. And that's somehow the essence of the museum is closely linked with the essence of the way of making uh, science, but also, of course, of making history somehow. It's a great point because the artifacts that you choose to include in a collection, the way that you choose to present it, and even the, the narrative that you spin around that, it's all developing history. It's putting a narrative to it. It's creating, it's creating meaning to the mm -hmm. entire collection. Otherwise, these are just pieces. Kind of like history is just you know, if we're just looking at facts, we just have a list of facts. We need to be able to look for a common thread to create meaning. But um, as we've seen in the in the museum community, it, just as in history, uh, the meaning that you create isn't always straightforward and accepted by everyone. And what's more, I would say, of course, meaning, and then also the fact of authenticity. And the early museums and the early museum collections, the very early uh, cabinets in the 16th century are connected with coins, medals, uh, inscriptions. And these were definitely the, the most important topic that were definitely authentics and that were definitely proving some facts coming directly from the antiquity. And it's with these authentic objects that history was made not only through the texts of the elders, I would say, but also with the authentic proofs. And, of course, museums, for that reason, were closely connected with authentic objects. That's also an, an interesting point uh, to, to raise, maybe. Yeah, and so that brings us, in some ways, to the point of the symposium that SNHU is going to be hosting with ICOFOM on the definition of the museum for the 21st century. And so I was wondering what your perspective on that is, since you are closely affiliated with ICOFOM, and ICOFOM has held these symposiums in a variety of other countries before the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, could you tell us a little bit about the process and what you have discovered so far in this attempt to create a new definition for, of museums for the future? Yeah, the very first point is 
to realize that, well, the museum world is, of course, evolving, but the museum in itself is evolving, is changing. The museum that we know, the museum of the 21st century, is not anymore the, the same as the museum of the 19th century, of course. And it still continues to change, which means that, of course, the, the museum may be defined from another perspective. For instance, the relation between people within the museum drastically changed during the, I would say, the last 20 years. The objects were at the centrum of the museum a couple of decades ago, and now it's mostly people who are at the centrum of the museum. Museum can be seen also as, I would say, places for participatory activities, participatory research, etc., etc., which means that if we have to think about the definition of the museum, we have to think about its evolution. And of course, I come the international organization of museums around the world that now has something like, uh, I think there are 37,000 professionals uh, around the world who are members of ICOM. ICOM was created in 1946, just after the Second World War. And at that moment, of course, they created it, they built their own museum definition. But of course, it had to change, and it, it changed several times. And it's, it's the eighth time that it was supposed to, to be changed, and the change should, should be done in 2019 for the annual conference in Kyoto that will be organized uh, in, in Japan, which means that within ICOFOM we decided to think about the way of considering how the definition could be changed and what were the different parts of the definitions that could create some problems or that could be changed, etc. So for that reason, as ECOFOM is so much interested in all of the different notions that are supposed to be the most important within the museum field, and of course, the museum in itself is an important notion, as you can imagine, we decided to organize different symposiums around the world in order to discuss this, that point. Actually, we were already interested in 2007, we already decided to organize a symposium around that topic, and that's for the reason why that we published a book, uh, which was in French first, which was called uh, Vers une redéfinition du musée in French, uh, that was translated three years after as What is a Museum? And we decided to continue to think about this topic in 2016. Then we organized one first meeting in, in Paris about that museum definition, mostly in French, but we, because we had in mind that it was very important also to discuss this topic in different languages. It's important to discuss it in English, as English is the kind of lingua franca of the world, I would say, but it's also very important to discuss it and to discuss it in Chinese, in French, in Spanish, in Brazilian, etc. That's the reason why we also organized a symposium in uh, Beijing, in China, in Rio de Janeiro, in Brazil, in Buenos Aires, in Argentina, in um, uh, St. Andrews in Scotland. And then, of course, during this year, we will have another symposium in Quebec normally, and then also uh, in one in Riga in uh, Northern Europe, one maybe in Belgium, one maybe in Spain. And then, of course, also a very important moment for us, which will be uh, that symposium in, in the United States. Actually, I was going to ask you about those two publications vers une redéfinition du musée and the English version, What is a Museum? 
which was translated by Ann Davis, Lynn Miranda, and Suzanne Nash. What did you see as the synthesis of that publication, the first publication, 2007, and mm -hmm. then the ICAFON meeting, and then the publication in 2010? And then how has it evolved? How has it developed into the Paris Symposium mm -hmm. last year? And um, in Definir le Musée de... 21e siècle matériaux pour une discussion in June of 2017, of which you organized. And also, I would also be interested in the Beijing Symposium, since those two were the main ones that you, actually three, that you organized. Well, concerning the first meetings in 2007, actually, they were connected with the last museum definition change of ICOM. The last moment, well, the, the museum definition changed for the last time in, in 2007, so, which means that just before we thought it would be very important to think about it. And of course, also, ICOM decided to, to organize a kind of a internet forum in order to discuss it, mostly in English. And within ICOFAM, we decided to, to discuss it in Calgary in 2005, I think, something like that. And somehow, the way we conceived it at that moment was mostly deconstructive, I would say. We started to build our own museum definition to reach a kind of consensus. Then we asked to all of the different participants, uh, the, most the most involved participants, uh, such as Teresa Scheiner, André Gobb, etc., to write an article. And most of them were very critical about the museum definition and trying to make it very, to deconstruct it, uh, mainly from, I would say, a theoretical point. I would say it's the, the major difference maybe with the um, conception that we had in Paris and in other uh, symposiums, because in, in, in Paris we mostly tried to be first most more inclusive in order to propose to uh, more people to participate in, in, in the discussion with different workshops. And second, also, there were much more propositions that were based on, I would say, a, s a social point of view, linking the museum work with such topics as uh, social inclusion, participatory uh, museums, but also in Paris, we had to think about some terms that were specifically, I would say, French. It's very difficult for, for, for me to translate them. For instance, the term that is used in, in French for the museum definition, one of the terms is that the aim of the museum is for uh, education, study, education, and what is translated in, in, in English as enjoyment. And, and in French, it's called délectation. And that term was supposed to be very odd, mostly if you consider that so many museums are not built for uh, enjoyment, if you are just considering some museums devoted to Holocaust, etc., and, and difficult history and difficult topics, you, you, you would feel that the aim of a museum is not specifically enjoyment. It might be, of course, somehow, but at a certain point it could be difficult to, to call this uh, enjoyment. And, all of these type of, of, of discussions were made specifically on the use of the term, for instance, in French. And it was also interesting to get the reaction of Chinese colleagues when we, we went to Beijing in order to organize that, that symposium. Some Chinese colleagues, it was very interesting, told us that actually the museum definition 
the same museum definition given by ICOM, it's not exactly the same in French and in English. There are some slightly uh, changes in, in priority. For instance, when the end of the definition says, uh, as, as I told, uh, that the aim of the museum are for the aim of study, education, and enjoyment. And this is actually the order of the objectives, I would say, in, in French. It's, it's starts with study and then education and then objective. But in English, it's for the aims of education and then study and then enjoyment, which means something, which means that there might be also some differences between museums and the way of conceiving museums around the world. And somehow that's also one of the points that could be raised. It's the fact that from different parts of the world, the museum world is not seen exactly the same. And there's a reason why it's so exciting, I would say, to, to organize this symposium in, in Brazil, in, in Argentina, in, in Scotland, etc. I think it's great that you're bringing in all these different viewpoints from around the world. And I, for one, am glad that I'm not one of the people that's going to have to make sense out of all of that to try to combine that all into one definition. It <laughs> sounds like it's going to be quite a task. Museum definition is not only a kind of a, a theoretical point, actually. Mu most museum professionals would like to know what is a museum, what is not a museum. And, and in, in some countries, it's very important for to gain some subsidies, etc., to have a, a, a good definition of what a museum is. And for instance, in, of course, in, in the American Association, well, the Mar American Alliance of Museums, you have this... Uh, accreditation process in order to, to get some recognition of what are the spirit of the, the good museums, I would say. Of course, not all of the museums in, in the United States are accredited by American Alliance of Museums, but they are based on the same idea that, of course, if you want to get to run an accreditation process, you need to know what is a museum, so you, you, you need to, to get a museum definition. And, it's somehow it's exactly the same for, for ICOM. ICOM museum definition was also the definition that was used by UNESCO for its recommendation on, on museums that was uh, accepted by all the countries in 2016. So just to get the, I don't know, the organization chart correct, if I understand it correctly, ICOFOM is a component of ICOM, which is a mm -hmm. component of UNESCO, is that correct? Actually, ICOFOM is not a component of UNESCO. It's a kind of, it's an association. It's, a, it's an NGO, parallel, I oh, would okay. say, to, to UNESCO. ICOM is linked with professionals, museum professionals, and of course, museum theoreticians, etc. But oh, we are all museum professionals somehow. UNESCO, of course, is linked with countries. So UNESCO and has a, a museum sector. But it's an organization, of course, dedicated to countries and uh, running and, and, and developing some recommendations for countries. ICOM is linked with museum professionals. That's, that's the reason why we, I, I, I spoke about the 37,000 uh, museum professionals who are members of, of ICOM. It couldn't be possible for UNESCO, for instance, to be a member of UNESCO. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I was just trying to keep that clear. Otherwise, the United States would not have ICOM anymore, right? That's right. <laughs> so in relation to all this, I would love to hear about your experiences with an actual museum. But I, I'd like to hear your experiences with the Royal Museum of Marimont. 
All right. So uh, I became director of the Musée Royal de Marimont in 2002, and I left the museum in 2010. So I, I managed the museum during eight years. These were, of course, amazingly important uh, years for me because important, I, I mean, for museum studies professor, museologist, I would say, uh, professor, it's to share also some real museum experience. If you work in a museum, you will definitely get another perspective on museum work. It's always very nice to, to, to think about theories, etc., but actually the practical work in a museum is sometimes very different from, than the theory. For me, it was very important. I, I, I made my PhD on the on museum, museum evaluation and, and, and the museum project, I would say the museum mission statement, the evolution of the museum mission statement and the museum uh, strategies behind museums, I would say. So it was somehow a very uh, theoretical um, approach of the museum sector and I was it was very much important for me to to get this expertise this practical expertise of what is running a museum because actually the Musée Royal de Marimont was I would say middle-sized museum I was uh, running a group of 70 60 60 people when I left we were 70 that's that's the point actually and the museum in itself was founded by uh, a collector, very important collector. I, I mean, it was um, at the beginning of the 20th century uh, that collector was could be called the kind of the Paul Getty of Belgium. He was the richest man in in, in Belgium. Of course, he, he he didn't make his fortune in oil, but in, in coal. And uh, he had some amazing uh, antiques collections of Egyptology, of, of, of Greek and, and Roman uh, remains. And he was also a fan of, um, of books. So he, he had some beautiful book bindings, uh, etc. Um, so we, we had all of these different collections. And we organized a lot of different exhibitions, and uh, of course we developed the research programs. Uh, we renovated the, the, some of the parts of the museums, etc. So I mean, I had the possibility to first to to be confronted with management, museum management, to try to raise some new funds, to try to find some sponsors, etc. Which is very difficult, much more difficult in Europe than in the United States somehow because of the legal system, but it was also so much important, I would say, in order to uh, confront my own ideas of what is a museum, what is museum management, with the practice. Oh, that's very interesting. So the industrialist's name was Raoul Varroquet? Yeah, exactly. It's interesting how you could actually apply what you studied at, as a business major and the theoretical implications of museology into actual practice. Well, sure. I mean, it, it might be one of the most important topics I would say I would raise for museum teaching. And I, I guess that, well, un, until now at least, because it starts to be old for me, uh, this type of experience, I would say. But it's, it's very important in my own way of teaching to speak from experience, I would say. When I, I speak about the museum, it's also the museum sector as, as I, I knew it from, from the heart of the museum, I would say, with all of the different experience. Of course, 
museum professors and, and teachers could always have some experience as advisors, etc. But when you are responsible for a museum, it's somehow totally different also. You know, when you are confronted to 60 to 70 people that you have to manage, when you are confronted with the museum guards to potential strikes, uh, to unions, worker unions, as you know, they are much more... Much, much, much more strong somehow. Well, they are very strong in 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 some countries uh, of Europe, such as in in, in Belgium or, or France, etc. It it gives you a totally different way of considering the museum. You you also realize how different the perspective is between the museum functions. We always say that museum research and museum preservations are very important, etc. But I could realize also that so many museums did not have the time or the money to, to spend and so, uh, to, to some energy to spend on preservation because they had to focus so much on museums, exhibitions, etc. If you just look at it from the outside, from a theoretical perspective, your point of view might be right, but it, it's always somehow wrong for the people who would see from the centrum, from, from the earth, I would say, saying, okay, yeah, that's right, but it does not, it's, it's, it's not like that and it works. Thank you. I also wanted to kind of connect what you have shared with us today with the next symposium, the next ICAFONC and University of Paris 3 Sorbonne Nouvelle Symposium yeah. on Thinking Places museum, library, and theater, because that is exactly what we do at Southern New Hampshire University, is also look at the public history program and incorporate all the different types of repositories, such as libraries, such as mm -hmm. theaters, such as archives. So it will be very interesting to discuss a little bit about the Paris Symposium in June 20 through 22, am I correct? Uh, um, yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. Yeah, I hope. It's a, it's a very exciting topic, actually. We organized already a symposium on uh, the links between uh, museum, libraries, and archives, the MLA in Tsukuba in 2015. And we, we decided to, to organize that symposium in, in, in Paris, seeing these places, such as museums, libraries, and archives, but, and also theater, not as places for display, for displaying exhibitions or for education places, etc., but as places for really thinking, making not only making some research, but really thinking, I would say, how does the architecture uh, of these places make it in order for us to change our ideas? You know, there are some wonderful places around the world uh, such as wonderful libraries, the War Book Institute in London that used to be in Germany before, and the, with the, the, the War Book Library, for instance, is an amazing place because it's, it's a library which system, the, 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 the system of classification, is it's totally specific to, to, to the place, I would say. It it's, it's was organized by uh, War Book himself. And if you just consider that the organization of the items, the books, or of course in a museum, the different objects, is a way of thinking. And when you are just seeing them, you are confronted to, to this idea of, of knowledge, to this specific knowledge, that the disposition, the display of the objects make you think, then you may 
start to consider the museum not only as a kind of education, etc., but how does the museum display affect our way of considering and thinking? And it's the same somehow with theatres, etc. There are, of course, some other ways for, for other places for thinking, uh, such as academies, of course, universities, etc. But we, we wanted to insist on the fact that museums, for instance, and also theatres, etc., were not only places for relaxing or educating it's in, 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 in a specific, I would say, general sense, but really places in order to create and to change some way of thinking. Yes, and it's very interesting because one of the earliest public institutions in England, for example, it was based upon the library collections. Uh, mm -hmm. the, British, the British Library became the British Museum. And we can also look at the Ptolemaic Museum as well mm. as examples. Well, actually, and, and that's you, you raised a very important topic somehow because um, when you ask to the museum professionals or to the librarians, do you feel close to the museum sector or do you feel close to the libraries? Most of them would say, oh, no, it's totally different. We are totally different. It's, and actually, when you look at the history, you, you can realize that most important part of the history uh, of, of both institutions were closely connected. And most institutions, such as the British Museum, such as most Cabinet of Curiosity, were having some collections of objects, but also of libraries. And from that perspective, it's, of course, is important to think about the sector in in one sense, in, 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 in the biggest sense, I would say. That's the reason why they were, you, you have some institutions, or the, uh, such as the Institute of uh, Library and Museum Service in, in, in United States. But actually, it's definitely not generalized. It's actually, it's very original. Uh, there used to be also uh, an MLA sector in United Kingdom, but it, it changed a, a bit. And in, in most parts of, of the world, actually, most of the libraries and, and museums or archives, etc., are, are really separated. And somehow, if you are not connecting these uh, institutions, I'm, I think that you might miss an important part of the message behind the organization of both of these institutions. Francois, do you have anything interesting that you would that you think would be worth mentioning that is either uh, related to something we've talked about already, or even if it's something that's not related to what we've maybe, talked about? Maybe would it be interested to 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 tell to some of the listeners that um, the Icofarm study series, which is the um, academic journal of Icofarm, is online and it's very easy to to get it. And some of the topics that we raised. Uh, today were discussed in, in, in this journal and uh, actually the journal was launched in, in the, the 80s but uh, now well most of the issues are, are available on ICOFOM website and now it's also available on a, a portal which is open edition where each article is separated and it's with a much better layout etc. An interesting maybe possibility for the people who would like to, to get an, a better idea of what is ICOFIRM to uh, reach this journal. What I would like to recommend, and I'm not going to go into the summary because Francois already gave us wonderful summaries, are the books that are also on the ICOFIRM website, 
vers une redéfinition du musée and what is a museum, which were both edited by François Mérès and translated by one of our current board members and former president, Anne Davis, and André Devalet, and also the Paris Symposium publication on Définir le musée du 21e siècle, matériaux pour une discussion. Okay, great, and I will put up the links for that also. Uh, James, do you have anything for us today? Sure. <laughs> My recommendation is a little less focused on <laughs> museums, but uh, That's all right. kind of in the same vein. There are some really great digital history projects out there for public consumption that collect various resources, list publications, and they're free. So there's a really interesting one that I've been looking at recently. It's called Digital Harlem, and it's just digitalharlem.org. And it basically collects various artifacts from everyday life in Harlem between the years 1915 and 1930, provides an interactive map. You can conduct various searches. So you can search places, you can search events, you can click around the map, you can select different people that were active in Harlem at, um, during that period which is actually a really fascinating period in New York and Harlem history, as well as American history and world history. So I really recommend uh, checking that out if you're interested in some of the, the fun digital history projects that are happening and would like to get a little bit more information about Harlem in the uh, 1920s and, well, basically 1915 up to 1930. So it focuses a lot on 1920s. That sounds great. All right. Well, I am going to briefly mention a article that's published in the... I think it's going to be the March issue of Perspectives on History, which is the news magazine of the American Historical Association. Every year they do an analysis of the job market in history. And so every year they publish an article based on that analysis. And that analysis usually takes the form of a graph, which is a very depressing graph every year because it, it traces the number of PhD graduates versus the number of full-time tenure job postings. And it's always a very depressing graph because there's a huge growing divergence between those two. As we all know, the job market is kind of collapsing for tenure-track instructors. But what the AHA is trying to do this year, which is interesting from the perspective of museums and public history and all of that, is they are trying to figure out a way where they can more accurately assess the job market for all historians because of the realization that a lot of historians aren't going into teaching anymore. And so a lot of them are going into alternative careers, which can take a lot of forms, museums, archives, docents, a variety of, of fields. And so they're trying to figure out a way where they can start to incorporate all these other fields into their annual job market analysis. They haven't exactly figured out how to do it yet. <laughs> it, the article ends with a question of basically posing it to the rest of the organization. How should we do this? But it is really interesting to me that this is representing kind of a shift in mindset where they're no longer focusing strictly on full-time professors as the successful realization of a history career. They have, org they have kind of opened up their thinking to try to incorporate all these other various options for students also, which is one of the points of this whole podcast. So that's how I'll make it relevant here, I suppose. But it's a really interesting article. It's, it's short. It doesn't provide a whole lot of answers to these questions yet about how we do this. It does still provide a summary of the tenure track jobs versus the number of historians, which is still a very depressing chart, as it always will be. But they, they are at least trying to figure out a way to incorporate other fields into it also. So that's in the it's either the February or the March issue of Perspectives on History, and I will post a link on that also. Thank you for joining us today, Francois. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Also yes, thank you very question. much. And thank you all for joining us today.
If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, as always, send me an email at snhuhistory at gmail.com. For James Fennessy, Susie Chung, and Francois Marais, I am Rob Denning. Have a good day.